Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in In Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the NBN and Oxford University Press. And I'm very pleased to say that today we have Colin Calloway on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Chiefs Now in the City, Indians in the Urban Frontier in Early America, just out from Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you, Marshall. Pleasure to be here. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Of course. Uh, I'm a professor of Native American Studies and History uh, at Dartmouth College, Uh, but as you might guess by the accent, (coughs) there's a uh, an interesting, well, at least maybe perhaps tortuous uh, story behind how I, I, I got there. Um, I was born in the north of England in, in, in Yorkshire, Scottish and English parents. Um, <clears throat> moved to the United States after having married uh, an American wife who basically was homesick. Um, taught before going to Dartmouth. I taught high school uh, couldn't get an academic job when I arrived here. Then I w- worked at the Center for the History of the American Indian at the Newbury Library for a couple of years, taught at the University of Wyoming for seven years, and then uh, moved to, to Dartmouth, and, and I've been there ever since. And um, for me, it's been kind of the best job in the world, it allows me to teach and research and write the things I love. Uh, this is not on my list of questions, but I have to ask, how did you become interested in the history of Native Americans? Yeah, would you believe I've been asked that before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to say, I don't know, but if you ever find out, would you call my mom? <laughs> it is a little unusual, but I actually, I think it... <clears throat> uh, feeds into to what we're talking about because I've had I've been asked I have been asked that question um, and I've had to think about it and I think that what always interested me about uh, I mean I'm a history nut and I'm always fascinated with American history but I think what always <clears throat> attracted me and interested me about American history was the presence of uh, Indian peoples Native America uh, because because it seemed to me that that was um, there was an, an epic story here about how a continent, if you like, changed hands, how people's homelands became the United States. And but one of the things that bemused me reading American history, both in England and frankly here, was the absence of Indian peoples from the standard narratives. Uh, and to me, maybe this was an, an advantage looking uh, with, if you like, European eyes. American history, so much of American history didn't make sense. It couldn't have happened the way that it did without the presence, the participation, and the power of Indian peoples. And yet, so often in the history books, Indian peoples were, were ignored. So I suppose if there's a, a connecting theme to the various books that I've, I've written and the classes that I've, I've taught, it's really, um, I suppose what I, what I often say to people is 
it's not so much that I, I teach and write Native American history because I'm you know, I'm not Native American and I wouldn't want to presume to be writing from, from that perspective. But what I, I do, frankly and simply, is American history with Indians in it. Um, and that sounds like um, a fairly simple thing, but it's, it's actually not so much because one of the fascinating things about doing American uh, Native American history for me is that you have to peel back so many layers of American history and consider why um, the history of this country has been so narrowly uh, narrated and why Native people have been so often ignored, dismissed, uh, or omitted. Yeah, you make a, a very good point. I, I, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. Mm. Both Wichita and Kansas are Native American terms, yeah. and I did not know that when I was growing up. <laughs> Inside of a huge Native settlement that new archaeological uh, research is beginning to identify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's turn right to the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Why did you write The Chiefs Now in the City, and what were you hoping to accomplish with the book? Yeah, I, I think a simple answer for all of the books that I, I've written uh, is that it sounds pretty selfish, but I think I write a book for myself primarily. I often think there isn't a book on that. I would like to have a book on on this topic, <laughs> so if it's not there, I'll... I'll, I'll write it myself, but um, I often come to a book through the process of, of writing previous books, which is probably a good thing because it, it, it encourages me to, to finish the previous book. Um, but in a couple of books that I'd, I'd worked on, I wrote a book um, quite a few years ago now for Oxford on Indian treaty making, and my most recent book on George Washington and Native Americans. Um, in both of those books, and generally in my work, I kept coming across <clears throat> Native American delegations to early American cities in the colonial era, and then particularly in the the, um, the 1790s, basically the first administration of, of George Washington. Um, and that was... <clears throat> Um, such a recurrent thing that it, it was clearly part of the landscape of early America. Um, but what I think really piqued my interest was um, when I realized how long some of those Indian delegations stayed in Philadelphia, for instance, um, because the the records in which I worked and the stories that I was telling were um, basically revolved about the the official business, if you like, the diplomacy, the negotiations, the treaties, um, which could take days and weeks. But very often, Indian delegations and the people who, who went with them, often they brought their families, wives and kids along, um, were often there for weeks and months. And I realized I didn't, I wasn't seeing much and didn't know much about what they were doing when <clears throat> they were off stage, as it were, when they were not involved in those, diplo- in those diplomatic proceedings. 
where did they stay? What? How did they eat? What? How did they fill their time? Um, and of course, remembering the size of the cities that we're talking about, you know, Philadelphia was the <clears throat> largest city in British North America with a population of what was it, something like twenty thousand uh, in. 1763, these were still kind of walkable cities. So if there were Indian delegations in town walking the streets, people would know about them. How did they react to them, etc. Um, so um, as part of my larger project, if, you, if I think of it that way, um, getting Native Americans back into Native American history. This seemed like uh, a, a great way to do it in a place that I, and in a way that I hadn't really explored before in a, any of my work, and that is trying to find <clears throat> and trace Indians who were in town. Uh, because what a compelling reason for trying to do that, of course, was that there's a strong narrative and assumption throughout American history that what happens to American Indians as settlement, shall we say, moves westward and as cities are built, Indians dis- disappear from the stage. They ex- they kind of exit stage left mm-hmm. as American or um, white or American settlement moves from east to west. And of course, one of the um, symbols of so-called civilization was the creation of cities with all of that brought, commerce, churches, schools, etc., etc. So Indians were often depicted, both in print and in images, as retreating from cities, were seen as people who really were not part of that urban landscape. And yet even in the research that I was doing where I wasn't looking for them in town, I was coming across Indians in town all of the time. So, what were they doing? How did they um, how did they feel about it? Could I even begin to get at that? Um, these seem to be questions I that that kept bubbling away at the back of my mind. And I think when I was working on the the book on the Indian world of George Washington, it really came to the fore where. Um, came across a reference to the fact that in one week, President Washington had four different delegations of Indian chiefs over for dinner on four different (laughs) days. Now, I knew enough from doing the research uh, for that book that that wasn't because George Washington liked having Indians over for dinner. There was something. (laughs) And that pointed to the importance still in the 1790s of Indian nations as powers in the land, which Washington recognized. That's why he was uh, cultivating them, if you like. But we've tended to, f- to forget that because we know how the story ends, if you like, that Indian people were dispossessed, defeated, etc. Well, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't necessarily an, an inevitability um, 200 years ago. Um, but I was intrigued, right, um, to get as much as I could or learn as much as I could about what Indian people were doing when they were in 
Williamsburg, Charleston, Albany, New York, uh, and Philadelphia. Um, and that meant, because I knew there was limited information in the official records, going into less official records and combing through the newspapers of early America to, to get what in many ways were just sightings, reportings of these delegations. And that's where the title of the book uh, came came out because one of the great things about doing research now is that you can search the huge number of early American uh, newspapers with a word search. Right? It's it's what I call not real research, but <laughs> um, but if I put in Indians, all you know, I'd get the usual reports of wars and killings on the frontiers. And even if I got chiefs, I got all kinds of other things. But then I realized that there was a phrase that kept coming up time and time again. Um, and it was, the chiefs now in this city. That was how newspapers used to kind of, uh, if not headline, at least introduce a report. Because what they would do would tell their readers what the chiefs now in this city were up to, what they were doing, uh, including things like tonight, this evening, they will be attending the theater. So if you want to see the chiefs now in the city, go to the theater and you can watch the visiting Indians watch a play. And that was a a tradition almost by this time because – when the uh, the so-called four Indian kings had visited England in the in the reign of Queen Anne at the beginning of the 18th century, that had happened. They'd gone to see a, a performance of Macbeth, um, and the the audience, the crowd, if you like, at the theatre, clamoured to be able to see the four Indians who were at the theatre. So they actually. Um, halted the play and got the um, the four that they were actually they were called the four Mohawks. They're actually three Mohawks and a Mike, and, and placed them on the stage on chairs so that the audience could watch the Indians watching the play. And that kind of thing was going on in um, in America too in the eighteenth and um, well, certainly in the eighteenth century. Um, so. The newspapers will begin to give me a different angle on these events and and what was going on. Um, And sometimes, a lot of times, it was needles in haystack research. Uh, And a lot of times, given the nature of newspapers at this time, you found the same story repeated a dozen times in in different newspapers. Um, But... It did persuade me, or confirm for me, that there was a story there um, and that I could make an effort at, at, at trying to um, trying to tell it. And in doing so, um, sort of kind of shatter this myth that Indian people and, and cities were mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course... There'd been 
Indian cities in North America long before Europeans arrived, right? Anybody who knows about Cahokia in present-day East St. Louis, um, or even the, you know, the, the size of settlements like the the one near Wichita, you know, the Spaniards talk about that being a settlement of maybe 20,000 people. In other words, larger than Philadelphia <laughs> until yeah. 1963. So um, it wasn't that there's, there's this um, mutual exclusivity between Native Americans and, and cities. And also in the colonial and early American period, Indian people don't always retreat from cities. Sometimes they gravitate toward them, not only for diplomatic reasons, but also because they are responding creatively uh, and on multiple levels to colonialism and invasion. And sometimes that necessitates retreat, but sometimes it necessitates or opens up um, opportunities to um, find an old, you know, if, if your traditional economy has been disrupted and devastated by war and invasion, etc., um, then cities represent or offer some new opportunities. They may not have been the opportunities that you wanted, but Indian people often went to cities, Indian women would would peddle their goods in, in cities and Indian people would sometimes relocate to cities and in some cases build new lives there um, as urban workers. Um, so one of the things that always intrigued me and I hardly could get at it was to try and envisage what happened when a delegation of Indian chiefs arrived in the cities, which they often did to a clamor of excitement, people would turn out to see them. Crowds would turn out. Um, for instance, when the Creek delegates arrive in New York in, in July of 1790, where they signed the first treaty that the United States makes after the Constitution, there's a huge turnout. Um, they say it's the biggest turnout since Washington's inauguration. Um, what I always wonder is how many of the people in that crowd who turned out to see the Indians coming were themselves actually Indians, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's a, that wasn't really the focus of my story, but that's a whole other set of stories, the lives of Indian peoples um, within, within the cities. So I wanted to kind of get at some of those <coughs> um, aspects of early American history to see and basically say, yet again, even in the areas where Indians are not supposed to be, there are Indian people, there are Native Americans, and that's a part of, of, uh, of the urban story as it is a part of the American story. Um, I, you know, I've often said in my classes that, uh, American history without Indians is a myth. It never happened. Um, and I, I, this is one kind of small piece of that, I think. I hope. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask a question about sources. Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. My impression is that for the most part, they're uh, European or American sources. So we have the European or American perspective. Yeah. Um, 
And and the question I have is, how can we get at, or can we get at, the Indian perspective on these urban encounters? Sure. And of course, this is something that I've wrestled with in this book and and all my work. Um, I'm always conscious of, um, and let's face it, it's you know, I'd be a dullard if I wasn't. (laughs) I was conscious. I'm not Native American. Um, I don't have bring any sort of cultural background or, or, or particular knowledge to this. And I also um, always want to be careful about what I presume that I think I know. Um, so I I rely on, on, on sources. And there are Native American sources because um, some Native Americans, of course, are literate. Uh, Samson Ockham, who visited London, left an account of his experiences in London. And he tells us what he felt on his first day in London. Um, he probably, and it sounds to me a lot like my first day in London when I, went, <laughs> when I, when I was a, a young person, went down to London from the north of England. Uh, Joseph Brown, who was a, a frequent visitor to uh Philadelphia and other cities. I uh, was an educated, uh, literate Mohawk. So there are Indian people who write um, their impressions. There are speeches made by Indian people in which they say things, their, their responses. But you're right. These are primarily European and American sources. And even if they contain Indian voices, shall we say, those voices are... Um, translated, mediated, filtered through that. One of the things that I, I did was to think about, um, given the paucity of Native American people, so, you know, when the Creeks, for instance, visit New York, the Creek delegates don't keep journals of what went on there. Right? Sometimes other people will say what they think those Indian people are thinking. But, you know, that's kind of supposition. Um, But I wanted to be able to um, imagine for myself at least what it was that those Native people were seeing. And so what I used quite a bit was journals and diaries and accounts written by other visitors. Very often they were visitors... Um, sometimes there were visitors from elsewhere in, in America who were coming to towns, cities for the first time. But very often, uh, perhaps more often, there were journals and accounts written by European visitors. So they're in a foreign country, they're in this new nation. And so they're describing what it was they see. And so I'd look to those uh, and look at, uh, the writings of European visitors who were, who were in town, if you like, whether it's Philadelphia or Charleston or Albany, wherever, at or about the same time as I knew there were Indian visitors there. So they would describe a church or they would describe a theater or they would uh, describe the market at, at Philadelphia. And knowing that Indian people would have seen those uh those, those same things, I could at least use those 
if you like, physical descriptions uh, to help to recreate um, the um, the landscape. It's imperfect, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but I I felt it got me one step closer um, to perhaps understanding uh, how those things um, appeared to, to Native Americans. So for an example, in the book that I, I like, I, I make this supposition, I suppose, that Indian delegates from you know, Western New York or Western Pennsylvania or Cherokee country arriving in town would have experienced a kind of degree of culture shock, not unlike Samson Ockham in, in London, you know, not, not so severe. Uh, but, you know, they, it, this would have been an assault on their senses. Um, I didn't have an account, a Native American account for an American city that was as evocative or as powerful as that of Ockham in London. But what I did find was an account by John Adams talking about riding home, telling his wife about his reaction, if you like, repulsion to Boston, arriving in Boston. Mm-hmm. Well, he travels from Braintree <laughs> down the road. So I felt yeah. it was probably a pretty safe bet that if somebody from Massachusetts arriving in Boston had this sort of reaction to the, the city as an, a bombardment on their senses, um, Native Americans you know, traveling hundreds of miles to the city could be expected to uh, to have a similar similar reaction. Um, so things like that, um, it's obviously if you like an imperfect science, but ways of trying to get myself closer to the action at the time uh, and be thinking of um, these places through the words uh, of people who were there at the time. Uh, even though they themselves were not Native American. And obviously, um, I'm aware of the fact that, of course, things like uh, language and worldview, and I think I use the term philosophy, how Native visitors would have interpreted what they saw uh, would all be dependent on on those things. And um, the Native languages... um, well, any language, of course, is not just a collection of words. It's a sort of cultural prism through which we understand and interpret mm-hmm. the world. Those those things would have been uh, are immensely important and are beyond me. Um, but I think so. I think there's a. It's a kind of a tip of an iceberg um, approach. I think scratching the surface of what was going on. Um, but sometimes you you know the, you you get a sense of, of things where uh, native people clearly um, see a distinction in how people live in the cities and how they live at home. Now they often they, those distinctions are clear anywhere they interact with with non-native people. But one of the things that uh, I came across in, in native, um, speeches, native uh, dialogues with where um, Indians say, 
they're kind of impressed, surprised by how everything in the city is on a uh, a monetary basis, right? Because what cities exist for that purpose, but they find it odd that people make money, make a profit selling food, right? Because in their own communities, of course, food is um, is a community held together by kinship, reciprocity, generosity, etc. Food is basically the understand the, the underpinning philosophy, uh, the ethic, and also the reality is that you you share these things. Um, and there's a, uh, a quotation in the book that I like where the, they, they say that they were surprised yeah. um, that people would make this. And it's prevalent enough that you get a, you can get a sense of Native American perspective through a non-Native source not actually purporting to... Um, report a native perspective. There's a, a moment in which uh, I think it's the governor of Pennsylvania speaking to a Haudenosaunee or Iroquois delegation, and I think they're probably on their way home. And he basically says to them something like, I hope you've had a good time and that we've been hospitable and generous to you. And I hope that when you get home, you'll be able to tell folks at home that uh, we in Philadelphia know how to be generous and hospitable too. Clearly, the understanding on both sides is that hospitality and generosity and looking after your fellow citizens, if you like, is something that Native societies do and maybe not so much something that mm. um, colonial American societies do. So there are um, glimpses, I think, in, in all of the records. And it's the kind of thing that when you, you find something like that, it's a, um, it might be a slim read, but it's a read on which to build uh, something. Mm-hmm. This might be an overbroad question, um, but why did Indians travel to colonial cities? Is it possible to develop a kind of typology of re- reasons for visiting? Are there, mm. are there a set of different reasons for these delegations or individuals coming to the cities? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and particularly because there are, there are very good reasons not to go to the cities. <laughs> One of the chapters I, I talk about is... Um, how, how dangerous it was to travel to cities, not simply because you might get beaten up on the way there or the way home, um, but because of disease. Because Native Americans, of course, after European invasion, basically inhabit a, um, a disease environment, an epidemic environment. Diseases rip through Indian country. But of course, the cities and Basically, we're talking about port cities like Philadelphia, like Charleston, are breeding grounds for diseases. And one of the things where there is not difficulty in finding uh, Native American commentary is about disease and smallpox. Because 
Indian delegates will often decline an invitation to travel to the cities mm. or postpone a planned visit to the city, citing the fact that there's smallpox in town. Um, mm-hmm. and, and actually saying, we're not going to come because last time we went, we lost so many of our, uh, of our people. Um, I um, use the example in the book. One of the examples is a delegation that travels from uh, the Wabash and Illinois country, hundreds of miles, uh, to visit Washington in, in Philadelphia. And eight of the delegates die. And they're actually buried in, uh, in in churchyard in Philadelphia, you can, uh, where there's actually a plaque to these people. That was such a uh, a common uh, occurrence. Uh, so there's all kinds of reasons not to go to the cities, and yet Indian people still come. Um, and as indicated before, the Indian people sort of naturally gravitate to the cities. Uh, some of the early histories of Philadelphia um, say that it was. Uh, um, fairly, fairly commonplace that you would go to the state yard or, or around the state yard, and that's where Indian people who were in town would kind of camp out, where Indian women would sell their, their baskets, etc., etc. So there are those exen- uh, examples where it's not so much a planned visit, but that the cities are actually part of Indian people's orbit. Native Americans in the in the area include cities in their travels, include cities in their economic activities. As regards the the delegations that I was more focused on, all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they're invited to make treaties, and I think in our understanding, of course, treaties means giving up land. Well, sometimes it's that, but certainly. <clears throat> Uh, in the colonial era, very often treaties were treaties to um, make friendship, to establish trade relations. And treaties um, like that, if they'd been made in town, uh, treaties from Native Americans' perspectives to the extent that I understand it, it's not something you just sign and say, okay, here's a treaty we made 30 years ago, it says here, this is what you do. Treaties are pacts and alliances um, that involve a meeting of, of minds and purposes, and they need to be refreshed and renewed periodically. And they need that, um, that renewal needs to take place in the same place as the original agreement was made. So you get people coming back to kind of refresh these alliances and these friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, so Indian people would be invited to town to do that. Sometimes they would come to town of cities of their own volition because they wanted to establish <coughs> trade relationships. Um, so there are examples of Dakota Sioux people traveling all the way from the upper Mississippi uh, River, what today would be Minnesota, to Montreal and Quebec to make treaties with the French. That's not to give land to the French, but it's to establish uh, trade trade networks, and that in, involves uh, establishing a kind of these these 
kinship alliances that hold people together. Um, sometimes they would, Indian people would travel to cities because what they are doing, and I'm a strong believer in seeing these things this way, is conducting foreign policy. And I, I like to use that term when I'm talking about Native Americans because it's a term that I think we often don't ascribe to them enough. Um, but when we're looking at early America, we're looking not at uh, white people dealing with Native American people. Of course, we are in large terms. But the reality is multiple colonies dealing with multiple Native nations. And those Native nations all have their own foreign policies, which require them to deal with other Native nations as well as with the French, with the English, with the Spanish, and with the different colonies. And so some um, Native delegates were frequent flyers, I guess. <laughs> so somebody like the Eastern Delaware Chief T. D. Eskin is a regular to Philadelphia because um, he's, he's dealing with different groups within Philadelphia, not just the Philadelphia government, but also the Quakers and there's all kinds of things going on there. And some of these goals can be personal and individual as well as, as tribal. But there are also Native uh, leaders who visit multiple cities because they're conducting diplomacy with multiple colonial powers. Mm -hmm. And knowing that colonial powers are part of the landscape, they know they want to do that. They know they need to do that. And sometimes they're doing that to play one off against the other. So sometimes you might get... Uh, you might, you can sometimes trace tribal leaders go from one city to another, and often, for instance, you know, if you're Choctaw and you travel to Charleston, well, you probably throw in another few cities while you're in the east as well. But you also find uh, native leaders who will be conducting the well, Alexander McGilliver, for instance, who was the. Uh, uh, leading individual in the Creek delegation to New York in 1790, he was pursuing that diplomacy with the United States, which is, of course, the new power on the North American landscape. But he's still conducting diplomacy and actually maintaining his existing alliance with the Spaniards. So McGillivray you know, um, travels north to deal with Washington, but he also travels south and west to deal with, uh, with Spanish colonial representatives. And I think that's an important uh, aspect of early American history that um, we can get at through, through looking at Indian people in the city. Back to your good question, why did they go? Sometimes they went because they were invited. Sometimes they went because they, uh, the situation demanded it. But I think they go for their own reasons. Uh, often they go on their own timetable. Yeah, we'd love to come. How about next year? Uh, <laughs> because they are still 
powers in the land. They are um, trying and they're often succeeding in maintaining their, pursuing their own agendas. They're not simply going to be dupes of colonial powers or to be dictated to. I think maybe that comes later uh, when Washington is is really the the center of empire. But in the in the in early American history, they have options, right? And they're invited, sometimes even begged, to come to say Albany rather than go to Quebec, because the <clears throat> the English in New York want to attract their trade and alliance and not see them going to Quebec. And Indians play this off. You'll see Indian people, uh, a part of uh, this diplomacy involves the giving of gifts, which is always misunderstood as Indians being mercenary. This is how you do business and how you show that good feelings between friends and allies. Friends and allies give and receive gifts that creates obligations and ties, and it also shows that you're speaking from the heart, not just from the mouth. Um, a common ploy is for Indian delegates, say in Philadelphia, it's, say to the English, thank you for the gifts you've given them, given us. We, we really appreciate this um, because, as you know, gifts are given as a sign that generosity is a sign of true friendship between friends and allies. It's too bad that the gifts that you're giving us are not as many (laughs) as what we get when we go to see the French in Quebec. Immediately, of course, then the English are scrambling to give gifts. So there's all these kinds of things uh, going on. Um, To follow up a little bit on the diplomacy case and about gifts, I know this from my own study of European visitors to Russia in the early modern period, Mm -hmm. that there was a procedure for this, a kind of formalized ritual where Mm -hmm. foreign delegations were received and gifts were exchanged and they were housed in a certain way and people had to be called certain things or Mm -hmm. people would get offended. Did these sorts of things develop in the later 18th century? Yeah. uh, And I think a lot of those... um, I would, I would say, yes, they develop, but actually I'd say rather than develop, what happens is that Europeans and then the Americans have to adopt uh-huh. existing Native American protocols for doing this. So a lot of the terminology, even though this we might think this is diplomacy that's being dictated by European power, um, they're actually consciously, deliberately, and carefully using the appropriate terminology, kinship terminology, uh, as, as required by Indian people, they often uh, they have to learn the language and the protocols of wampum belts that are exchanged at, at these things. And the yeah, the giving of gifts is not simply um, it's not haphazard. There yeah. are there are rituals surrounding this. Um, and these are things that Native people expect of their friends and allies, and Europeans uh, cater to that, respond to that. Um, a lot of times they'll complain about it. They say it's ridiculous that these 
<clears throat> native people come to town and then they they leave town and often this was the case with wagon loads of gifts from the colonial government uh, or the United States government but people will often point out yes but it's far less expensive than going to war right if we can secure what we need through diplomacy rather than war this is a this is a huge savings but the things that you're talking about that are actually by say 1800 um, the the United States government uh, um, is actually laying out this is what we do when Indian Indian delegates arrive in town on the other hand because it was expensive, because it was time-consuming, because it put pressure on resources, um, even in the colonial period, there are authorities who try and discourage Indians from coming to town uninvited. <laughs> Which, you know, and they'll say, "We're sorry, we can't. Sorry, we can't um, show you a better time or give you more things because we didn't know you were coming." Right. Um, that can be an excuse. Uh, it can also be dipl- diplomatically em- embarrassing for, for the colonies. But again, it also reminds us that sometimes when Indian people come to town, it's their idea, not the, at, the, at the calling of, of, of the colonists. Yes, this is exactly the same thing that I found in my research about Europeans visiting Russia, that they paid incredibly close attention to protocol and they mm-hmm. learned what the Russians expected and in the European case, they wrote it all down. We have these documents, how mm-hmm. to go to Russia, how to beat the czar, what you should do when you're there. And the Russians, for their part, understood all of the deference and respect that was required of these European visitors. And uh, a breach of protocol could be uh, uh, catastrophic. Exactly. And so, and so they, they, did not, they, did, they did not play with these things. Right. And that's what <laughs> makes it fascinating because very often – what hurts you is not what you don't know, but what you don't know you don't know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> these, uh, you sometimes see in the records of uh, Native American, <coughs> Euro-American encounter, just clear gaffes. Well, it's not so much that people are out to to hurt one another, that, that they're just kind of talking past each other. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I <coughs> always uh, frustrates me, I suppose, but also... Um, intrigues me as a historian is when you're reading the records one thing you can't get is looks of bemusement and <laughs> so many looks of bemusement on people's faces what yeah yeah um we're coming up to the uh end of our time but i wanted to talk a little bit about what we might call the end of the story or maybe a new chapter in the story as you pointed out, at some point, the balance of power shifts in favor of the Europeans or the colonists, mm. and the Europeans or colonists didn't have to entertain the visiting parties of Indians in the way that they did before. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that happened and perhaps even what the Indians thought about that shift? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that obviously there's a huge shift in the power dynamics, uh, and especially when the United States ultimately emerges as the only power with which Native nations have to deal. You know, the Spanish are gone, the, the English are, are, are gone, etc. So now Indian people are coming to Washington by this time as the, as the 
as the imperial power where policy is uh, dictated, implemented. Uh, and I think I used the line in the book somewhere that previously Indian people had come to town to negotiate agreements and alliances. Uh, and by the 19th century, increasingly that when they come to Washington, it's really to negotiate the terms of their survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the, the taking of land is a, is a huge part of that. Um, a lot of the same things pertain, though, and the United States government um, and the story of, of Native Americans visiting visiting Washington has is, is, is been told, and it's in some ways much more accessible because you've got photographs of visiting delegations riding around in cars and, um, you know, the hotels in which they stayed. So a lot of the same, let's call them protocols um, and practices, are in place and carried out with the same purpose that many of the colonists and city fathers tried to achieve in the early period, and that's let's impress the hell out of these people. Right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the cities are the centers of our power, prosperity, and wealth, and Indian people will come here and will be awestruck, and then they'll, be, they'll want to be our friends and, and, and do as we say. Well, I think in the early period, not so much. Um, but I think that becomes such an important part of uh, federal Indian policy so that um, Indian chiefs from the West are constantly being brought to Washington um, throughout the 19th and, and into, into the 20th century. And again, part of the story is how Native Americans then make Washington uh, part of their political diplomatic orbit um, and how, you know, they, they don't just say, okay, Washington's horrible. We want nothing to do with it. They continue to come and come in large numbers because, of course, it is the source of power. And Indian people, even in the 19th and well into the 20th and now, right, are in Washington, going to Washington um, to do business. That's because that's where you you get things done. But clearly, I think there is a significant shift in the balance of power and in in the attitudes towards native delegates. Um, That it's not so much now as that the government is courting native allies because it has to. It's bringing Indian people to help promote its policies of land acquisition and quote-unquote civilization. So Indian people will see the, the, if you like, the apex of civilization and will go home wearing a peace medal and hopefully become advocates and agents of the implementation of that, of that policy. And, of course, it's hugely complicated and it, it's... Uh, not as nearly as simple a story as the United States government hoped it would be, but it's it's still an important part of this whole continental encounter. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I, it's well it's well said. Um, well, thank you very much for your answers. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and I will ask it now. What are you working on now? 
Yes, I am flailing around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm working on a book that I'm. The working title is the Scotch-Irish Invasion of Indian Country, and again, of course, this is something that I, uh, I the idea for it has percolated for years. Many years ago, I I wrote a book on Highland Scots and American Indians, um, because my own Highland Scottish background, I, I saw lots of similarities there in. Um, the experiences of Highland Scots in dealing with English colonialism and the experiences of American mm-hmm. Indians in dealing with British and then American colonialism. So there were lots of parallels and also lots of interesting interactions. And this is not more of the same because um, the Scotch-Irish dynamic seems to me is, 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 is different. When scholars of Native American history and scholars of the American frontier are talking, one of the things that drives this is we understand that we have to recognize diversity and variety in Native America, right? And of course we do. We don't always follow that so much when we're talking about, if you like, settler colonists. We'll often just call them colonists and often just call them white, and often, I, I get frustrated with many of my American colonists, we often call them English. Uh-huh. And often when we're using the term, that term English is used, they're talking about the people, when you look at it, the people they're talking about, uh, they're not English. Yeah, They're Irish, they're Scots-Irish, they're Scots. Right? And those things may not matter so much, say, to American people today. They mattered then. And I think they should still matter to us as historians because it means they're coming from different traditions. And Scots-Irish people came into existence, in a sense, in the early 17th century when people primarily from the western lowlands of Scotland, some from the Highlands, were transplanted to Northern Ireland to serve as a buffer Mm-hmm. against the so-called wild Irish. So they were Protestants to act as a buffer against the Catholic Irish. And you don't need to know much about Irish history uh, on, on what's going on today <laughs> to see how that's played out. Right? In the 18th century, thousands of, of those um, people from Northern Ireland migrated to America where they um, eventually became known as Scotch-Irish. And the same thing happened on the frontiers of New England, Pennsylvania, Virginia, the Carolinas. They were um, encouraged to settle on the frontier as a buffer against the so-called wild Indians. Um, This complicates our understandings of frontier and complicates our understandings of Indian-white interactions, because Scots-Irish on the frontiers of America are people coming from a borderland experience. They're fulfilling a borderland function, uh, ostensibly to provide a defense for other settlements against Indian people, but of course there's interaction with Indian people. Um, And 
they also feel that they are exploited consistently by colonial governments who encourage them to go out there and provide a barrier against Indian attack, but who do not support them. But often the people who in the historical literature are identified as sort of Indian killers or Indian haters, people who pull off things like the... um, the Conestoga Massacre, uh, in, in the Lancaster Massacre in 1763, is a Scotch-Irish. Mm-hmm. And I want to tackle this idea that there's something um, kind of congenital or cultural you know, that makes a particular people uh, racist or Indian killers. Right? I think a lot of these things are a product of his historical experience, and that historical experience can also be a product of identity, which is really interesting because the Scotch-Irish, in the course of their history, become almost quintessential Americans. Um, and part of that uh, identity, and this is not new to me, lots of people pointed out to this, one of the ways of achieving that identity is to separate and distinguish yourself from others, whether it's African-American, Native American, etc. And so there's interesting sort of dynamics there as a way to, um, I think, look at and and think about broader patterns in American history. Um, So this, I I often think that I operate on a large book, small book, uh, rhythm. Um, so Chiefs in this City it would be a smaller book, and this, I think, will be a, a larger book. Well, I look forward to speaking uh, to you about it okay. when you're done. All right. Um, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Colin Calloway about his book, The Chiefs Now in This City, Indians and the Urban Frontier in Early America. It's out from Oxford University Press just this year, 2021. My name is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and thank you for listening. Colin, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. It was my pleasure.